Pushkin. I've interviewed many successful people over the years, and one thing I find fascinating is many of them don't consider themselves business savvy. Take the owners of Tight Knit Brewing. They turn to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards and do all of it in one place with the Chase mobile app. And that's helped these brew-loving friends turn a passion into a business. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong. Radiant. Timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is Talk Easy. I'm Sam Fragoso. Welcome to the show. Today, I am joined by author and former mayor of Stockton, California, Michael Tubbs. Back in 2016, at age 26, with an endorsement from President Obama, Tubbs became the youngest mayor of any major city in American history. He was also Stockton's first black mayor. The city saw a 40% drop in homicides in 2018 and 2019. He brought in $20 million in nonprofit grants to fund a scholarship program to increase the number of local high school graduates who attend college. And he turned Stockton, which has more than 300,000 people, into the second most fiscally healthy city in California. Where he found national media attention, though, was as a champion for universal basic income. In early 2019, Tubbs created a pilot program for UBI, which gave 125 Stockton residents $500 a month on a prepaid debit card. No strings attached. As NPR reports... A study of the period from February 2019 to February 2020 determined that full-time employment rose among those who received the guaranteed income and that their financial, physical, and emotional health improved. The issues of poverty and job security are personal ones to Tubbs, who grew up in Stockton in the 90s. At times facing homelessness, his mother worked several jobs to make ends meet while his father was sentenced to life in prison. 
Tubbs describes his checkered childhood in his new book, The Deeper the Roots, a memoir of hope and home. The book is also of triumph and tragedy, record-breaking highs and back-breaking lows. We hear about those in this episode, but for context, this wasn't always easy for Tubbs to share. Growing up, his mother would always say, don't tell anybody our business. Don't tell people how you live or who you live with. Don't tell them how you like basketball and books in equal measure. Don't tell them about your father in jail. Don't tell them. And so today, at age 31, father of two, Michael Tubbs is finally telling the story he never thought he would tell. His own. Michael Tubbs, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing? I am just filled with so much gratitude, particularly in writing a book. You spend a lot of time thinking of, yeah, some tough things, but all the things that worked out well for you and all the people who've contributed. So just very thankful, very much in a space of gratitude right now. That's curiously close to all is good. And um, that's the response that I know growing up you were told to say by your mother. So I want to make sure, are you are you actually yeah. good or are you putting this no. on <laughs> because it's a childhood response that you have? It's a fair question, fair question. And even if things weren't good, I would probably say everything's all right. Exactly, but, which but, we, we can't have that here. We have to be open here. But truly, I'm just so <laughs> thankful. And it feels like this season of life is one that isn't perfect, but one that's really good. Well, can we go back to you as a kid and, and that line between you and your mother? Because... She would say whether you were participating in the Math Olympics or losing a basketball game or on this Easter Sunday, it was imperative to let people know that all was good. In the world we lived in, vulnerability was a sign of weakness. How do you regard that approach now? I get the approach given the circumstances in which we lived and the environment in which we lived. And I think growing up in poverty and not the safest places all the time, that it was actually logical to sort of develop a exterior that looked like unpenetrable because then people wouldn't try to take advantage of you. In environments like that, oftentimes, weakness is preyed upon. So I get why she would say that, but it's been something I've had to work to undo and unlearn as an adult, and I'm still undoing and unlearning, and definitely don't want to pass that on, that extreme to my children. I want them to feel and to embrace those emotions. But that impenetrable shell that you're talking about, it was broken that Easter Sunday when you're 11 years old in front of the congregation reading from the book of Isaiah. There's this passage that you read that I thought maybe we'd start with here if you want to read it. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root from the parched earth. He had no beauty or majesty to catch our eye, nothing in his appearance to draw us to him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom you turn your face, spurned, and we'd held him in no esteem. What happened that morning? So that morning I was in in church, and everybody goes to church on Easter Sunday. Before the pastor was to get up, I was to quote Isaiah 53 from memory. So as I'm giving it, I actually remember just like the words and just being overcome by 
just the loneliness and the grief and the injustice. And I just started crying. I, I just felt, and I had practiced it to memorize it. And I had never felt what the words meant. But for some reason, my 11-year-old self looking out on everyone and hearing about this man who was familiar with pain and grief and bore our afflictions and was, you just feel it. But then I really felt it. So I just started crying. And I think some people thought I had forgotten or I had messed up, but the story, the life of Jesus just felt so messed up. And I just remember just sobbing and sobbing and sobbing and taking a little bit of a beat to sort of gather myself and, and, and to finish. How did you finish? Luckily, I actually knew the passage, so I knew the next word. So once I got the tears out, I just still with my sniffling and, and, and stumbling, but got through it. When you finish it, you go back to the car. It's a pretty tense car ride home. Why was that? Anytime anyone sees a kid do anything, it's the best thing ever. So everyone in church is standing up, clapping, like really proud. My grandma is beaming, but my mom is like furious. And the pastor calls me up and like takes an offering for me. Like, hey, Michael gave this great speech. Let's let's support this young man. But then we get to the car and my mom's just not happy. <laughs> she doesn't say anything. She's dead silent. And I knew she was upset that I had like, quote unquote, messed up. And I was like, no, I wasn't, I didn't mess up. Like that story just really, I don't know, it just made me cry. But she was, just wasn't really happy. <laughs> it wasn't like, I don't know, ashamed, angry, a little bit embarrassed until we got to the house. And we got to the house and we saw our um, voicemail light. And we listened to all these messages. And it was all these people from the church saying they were so moved and, oh, my gosh, wow, hearing the way you delivered it really resonated with me. And that was, I think, a good reminder for both of us that sometimes showing emotion and sometimes being vulnerable isn't a bad thing. It could actually lead to more connections to the folks you're trying to reach. But your tears that morning reminded her of her own tears Years prior, this is late 80s in Stockton, where she's in front of a congregation admitting to people that she's pregnant with you. Does she share that connection with you that day? She did not share that connection with me that day, and I did not even make the connection myself. So I sat down to write that chapter, which is one of the last chapters I wrote, the first one. And I remember I, I was like, I wouldn't start with me speaking at church, but I went to start there because so much of my role is speaking. But then when I was doing it, I said, it'd be an interesting way to introduce my mom here. And, why she, and then I thought, like, well, why was she angry? And then I remembered she had an experience speaking at church. So actually, that juxtaposition between me speaking as a favorite of the pastor, as the golden child, as this is our the, the next leader, versus when she spoke 11 years previously is because of a deep shame, because she was pregnant out of wedlock and was incredibly young. She was a high schooler. And I reflected and I told her when she read that chapter, I said, Mom, that's the first time I put it together that you felt so much pressure, particularly at the church, for me to be perfect, for me to be good because of the shame you you were made to feel when you were younger. And you were like, no, my son's going to have a chance to be on stage. It's redemption. So it needs to be perfect. Like, no, he wasn't a mistake. I didn't make a mistake. And I think sort of seeing me cry probably brought back memories for her about how alone and scared and ashamed she felt at church. And then also it probably brought back some demons around, well, maybe my kid shouldn't be up there. Or maybe we shouldn't be up front. Maybe we should actually be in the back. As that afraid 16-year-old teenager, she has you with your father, who's 17. They meet in high school in Stockton in the late 80s. At that time, the city was flooded by the crack cocaine market. You write, crack in Stockton can net a dealer 400% more than they could make in L.A., because demand far outpaced supply. 
transnational gangs took root, and a reputation for violence and crime began to subsume the city's identity. Where does your mother and father fit into this picture? Yeah, my mother was always a rebel, but, I mean, my grandmother worked for San Joaquin County. Not rich, but was a county worker, lower middle class. Her stepfather was a bus driver. Middle class job, you work for the city bus line. She went to private school up until high school. She was in church every Sunday, every Wednesday, like very structured life in many respects. And my father also didn't come from necessarily poverty. His mom, my grandmother, was a homemaker, and his dad was one of the first black firemen for the city. But he also had this rebellious streak, and he got involved sort of in gang life out of a a sense of wanting to defend his neighborhood or his friends against these gangs that were coming in. And because of that, I got involved with gangs and drug trafficking at a very young age to the point that when I was born, he was already in a juvenile detention facility. I mean, I think my mom was more of a voyeur, if you will, to sort of all the like crime and devastation and drugs that were beginning to explode, while my dad was like an active participant. So when you're interviewing her for the book, I assume you talk to her about your birth, which happens on August 2nd, 1990. You're born a month early. Even in childbirth, there is some politics at play here. Can you explain those for folks? Yeah, what was interesting is that my family, we have like these lures, my wife says, that we share all the time. And one of them was about my birth. So I didn't even have to interview her about that because I'd grown up hearing about the circumstances of, of my birth. So she was 16 years old, pregnant, her water breaks. And she goes to the hospital and she's talking about her pain level as contractions are increasing and the doctors and nurses don't believe her. Like, you're delusional, you're lying, you're delusional because that hooked up the monitor to her front, but she was having back contractions. So they weren't just reading anything, but she was in like excruciating pain. So she runs to the shower, turns the shower on, and immediately I start crowning. <laughs> and they're like, oh no, he can't come yet. Last time we checked, his lungs weren't fully developed. Last time we checked, he had a heart murmur. So they had a helicopter ready to take me to Oakland's Children's Hospital I was a premature baby. But the political part is there's all this research and all this data about the black maternal health crisis. Nurses and doctors not listening to black women in particular when they describe sort of the pains they're having in childbirth or describe what's happening to their bodies or to their babies. And that's why I mentioned that in the book. It's like, like, no, this is an individual experience, but it's part of the structural issue, whether it's my mom or even Serena Williams. So there are lores in your family that have been passed on. Oh, yeah. What is the story passed on when you and your mother get kicked out of your grandmother's house? That's a story that's not talked about a lot. And that's a story I'm sure that I wish I hadn't included in the book. Why is that? I think like most families, my family likes to dwell on the positive, likes to dwell on the things that are going well, the harmonious relationships in life we have now, which are also a truth, right? Everything's good, you know. But I mean, there's still some tension, but my mom, my aunt, and my grandmother see each other every day. They're like actually really, really close and do everything together. But I thought it was important, though, because I love my grandmother and I love my mother to talk about sort of when we were kicked out the house and talk about being housing insecure and talk about being homeless and talk about living in a motel for a month. It's funny, even now, I was talking to my mom yesterday. She's like, you guys want to move to a house with a pool? She's still stuck on this idea that her son needs to have a pool. And it 
comes from when we stayed at the Motel 6 for a month. We would sit by the pool, and she would say, we're on vacation, and this is a nice pool, and one day I'll be old. I'll have a pool in my backyard, so my kids won't have to go to a hotel to go to a pool. They'll be in the pool in, in, in their backyard. Um, but yeah, my grandmother kicked us out because, I mean, my mom was 18, 19. With two kids under two, I get it. It's stressful, and it's exhausting, and I can only imagine doing that as an 18, 19-year-old when you're still trying to figure out yourself. I'm sure my mom wasn't the happiest camper. And it finally began to grate on my grandmother, and she felt my mom was being disrespectful. So she said, Michael could stay with me anytime, no problem, but you have to find somewhere else to go. Do you have any memory of that? Because you're two or three at this point. I remember the motel because I remember eating Cheez-Its. I remember like one night having this Cheez-Its and eating that for dinner. And I think part of my memory is also colored by what I've heard my mom say over the years. Mm-hmm. But I literally remember Motel 6, box of cheeses. You do eventually leave the Motel 6. Your mom saves up rent, gets a home in Stockton. Come middle school, with your father not present, she starts to sense that you are angry. And as you write, her focus was to make sure I stayed on the narrow path as she defined it. What my mother saw, though was a young man with a smart mouth and an attitude problem. Together, your parents decided you should visit your father at Mule Creek State Prison. Walk us through that moment of of entering the prison because it's one that many people are not familiar with. Usually prisons are far from where people live. And then you get there, and I mean, it's a prison. It's not a camp. There's just a lot of noise. For every door, there's a like just a reminder that your movements are very controlled and you don't have free range of motion. So I just remember feeling like almost suffocated, like, oh my gosh, I can't get out of here. I want to see some sun. I want to see some air. And then there's like guards everywhere and the guards treat you as if you've broken the law. And then in the visiting rooms, it's 90%, 90 plus percent women, either mothers or girlfriends or wives or aunts. And children. So there's a lot of like love and happiness. But then when it's time to leave and that separation, it gets like not violent in the sense of like prison violence, but violence in the sense of like soul violence. Like people are being ripped apart and babies are crying and moms are tears down their eyes and everyone's shrieking and then everyone's quiet on the bus back to the cars. But yeah, I was 12 years old. It's my first time I'm going because my mom would always ask me that I want to go. Like, no. <laughs> that It never sounded fun to me. It never sounded fun? Yeah, it's like, I just sound like, well, 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 did you want her to pitch it as fun? Well, I mean, why would I go, right? I'm like 12, like a kid, like eight years old. You want to go visit your dad in prison? No, I actually don't. No, I'm fine. Just your casual retelling of it where it's like she didn't brand it properly. Because <laughs> my mom is so nonchalant with everything. She's like, you want to go visit your dad? No? Okay. But this time, she didn't present it to me as an option. And she said, tomorrow, wake up at this time, get dressed, you're going to go visit your dad. When you sit face-to-face with him, a 12-year-old with a father you hadn't had much time with, I know you've written about it in the book, but as we're sitting here, I'm thinking you're about this distance mm-hmm. away from him. Mm-hmm. How did you make sense of that meeting? First, you know, as a kid, you have a vivid imagination. And because he wasn't present, I was able to create my own image of who my dad was. And what was that? Like a superhero. And then when you get to prison and you're like, you're out of prison, you're like, oh man, what if he like looks like a quote unquote criminal? What if he looks like a bad person? My first reaction when I saw him was, 
he actually looks kind of like me. <laughs> he looks like neither of those things. He actually looks a little bit like me. And then in the conversation with him, I was like, just why are you here? Like, what, what happened? And he started talking about structures and policy in America and that, look, the way it's set up, they're going to give you two options, prison or death. That has always stuck with me as something to prove wrong. Even at that age, I was like, yeah, I don't like those options for us. <laughs> We're going to have to fix this. We're going to have to make something different, not just for me, but for everyone. You thought his explanation about these existing structures was not entirely sufficient. What did you want him to say? When I asked the question, I really wanted to know, like, what was the crime you committed? Like, like I was just looking for a very direct answer. Like, what did you do? What was the crime? Like, why are you in here? And to his credit, I think he took that question and, and led it to a different sort of conversation about society, about a construct, about a structure. And it still reverberates in my mind. Like, do we really live in a society where the options for some people are only prison or death? And if that's so, why do we live like this? And how do we change it? In defying these expectations put forth by your father, you attend Franklin High School, where you win elections for homecoming prince, black student union, and student body president. You then apply to join the city's youth advisory commission, where you would meet with the mayor and city council about the needs of the youth in the community. You said of these meetings, I always marveled at how ordinary the decision makers were, how they weren't that much smarter than me as a teen or anyone else in the community I came into contact with. Still, they had both access and power. Their voices mattered. They made decisions that we all were forced to live with. Having been in politics yourself now, do you still regard those decision makers, whether it's at the local level or the national level, do you still regard them as ordinary? At that time, by ordinary, I meant that there wasn't like some innate power or ability that gave them the right to lead. They weren't superheroes. Right? They, they weren't like, oh my gosh, I want to be this person, or oh my gosh, this is the person I want to be making decisions. Or to your point, they weren't superheroes. And now I would say, I could think of colleagues I worked with, literally some of the worst people. I mean, not because we have political disagreements, but like the mayor I beat who was indicted by the FBI for crimes against children. Like some of the worst people who also were elevated to leadership. But as a 16-year-old, I didn't have that window. I just knew that these people aren't being incredibly thoughtful about these decisions and they aren't that different from me or my family or anyone to have such authority and such ability to influence how we all lived. That experience could have very easily dissuaded you from doing that line of work, and yet it seemed to do the opposite. Yeah, I've always been motivated and challenged by, like, why can't I do it? I have the ability. There's no reason why I can't do this work. What ability is that? I think the ability to bring people together, the ability to lead coalitions, the ability to communicate, the ability to inspire or to garner actions, get people excited towards moving towards a goal. And I was like, well, I can do that. Maybe this is a world in which I could play. What's the first example of you doing what you just said? All through elementary school, I was always team captain. And literally my records on the playground, I think I won 90% of basketball, football. 90%? I, I'm telling you, I used to pick my teams meticulously. No like, one wins 90% pick up basketball not, games. 90%, let's say 85%, a vast majority. I was like UConn women's hoops, though. I was like really good out there. Um, and not because I was the best player, but I actually was good for a couple of years, but I always picked the best teams. I'm glad I can get you down to 85. Yeah, 85. Good. And then in sixth grade, I went to a mostly white private school, and we didn't have anything for Black History Month. 
So I told the principal, we need a Black History Month assembly. And the principal said, well, plan it. So at sixth grade, I wrote, directed, and planned a whole Black History Month assembly that the whole school had to sit through, recruited 20 of my friends to be in it, wrote their lines, had them memorize it, and we did it. Well, can we go to one early example where I think you fail on this? You're at Hamilton Middle School, probably around the time you're talking about, and you run for student body vice president and then student body president. You wrote, it proved too difficult to convince my basketball friends to take a break from the games and to go vote. And it was even more difficult to get them to understand why I would even want to be in both IB and student council. Now, this is a very silly example of a young kid wanting to be in student government and just trying to get their friends to vote. But you couldn't. And I wondered, in looking back, why couldn't you? Looking back, I couldn't because I didn't convince them that I was very serious about it. So it had no stakes. Yeah, they're like, even if they didn't want to do it, there's things I could have done, like take the basketball and say, listen, we're not playing until we vote. Like, and they would have been like, oh, I hate you, but they would have voted. Or sort of say, you guys, like, this really matters to me, so let's start the game 10 minutes later, but I really need you guys to vote. I got to be honest, I never really liked the kids <laughs> that were student body president. Yeah. But that's why I lost, because I was different than the student body kids. I was like, cool. <laughs> I enjoyed it. I was cool with everyone, but I think that's what it was. And I also made it seem like I didn't care. Every day I look forward to this 30 minutes of lunch. You want me to give away 10 minutes of that to vote for something you don't care about? I'm not voting. So it makes perfect sense. But I did that as a protective mechanism in case I lost. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be hurt or I wouldn't show people how much I cared. And in doing so, it just became a self-fulfilling prophecy. When you go to college at Stanford and then you intern at Google and the White House, there's this day, November 1st, 2010, where this political path that you're talking about, that you're hinting at, it gets clarified. What happens that morning? So that morning, I was in the office writing press clips for Valerie Jarrett. My internship was working with mayors and councils, so also writing clips about what every mayor was doing. Did you like that internship? I loved the internship. I hated the job. It's funny looking back because it makes so much sense. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you rolled your eyes when you said it. Yeah, it was my last like choice. I went to do policy work. It was like mayors and councils, who cares? But it was Again, a precursor for the work I would be doing. I spent literally four months, 12 hours a day, just working with, thinking about, and thinking like mayors and council members, which is just a perfect, perfect preparation for what I ended up doing. But I had no idea I was going to do it. So my mom calls me, and she never would call me when I was at work because she just respected the president and the first lady so much. She was like, I'm not going to bother you. And that's big for my mom because she texts, calls, emails, FaceTimes multiple times a day, all day. Uh, <laughs> so she calls and I'm like okay she's calling it must be important so I answer and I can hear muffled cries on the other end and as we've talked about at length already my mom's not the most emotional or she has, she's emotional but she doesn't emote publicly in, in that way so I knew something was wrong so I go out to the courtyard and she tells me that my cousin um, Donnell James II had been murdered at a house party in Stockton and it was really that juxtaposition I'm at the White House I was at Google I'm at Stanford. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm successful. I made it. And that high and then the low of like your cousin being murdered back home. And it really got me to think about how was Stockton or how was anyone better off because I was successful? Like what does this success mean? And can you be successful with your family or community really struggling? And that intensified feelings of survivor's guilt I already had. 
and really put me in a, especially as an angsty 20-year-old, like existential crisis. What am I supposed to do here? And then in the pain and grief, demanding that there had to be meaning from it. Like this did not just happen. I refuse to believe this is a random act. There's something here. There's something here. And if if I pray enough and listen enough, I'll find out what I'm supposed to learn from this. But for me, it just felt like it would be even more difficult to move on and to grieve if it was just random, if it was just something that happened and there was no purpose or there's nothing to be gained from it. So that sort of began the self-examination process that led to me to run for city council. Before you do that, as that angsty 20-year-old in the White House getting that kind of phone call, when you hang up the phone, what do you do? I took a deep breath like that, put the phone in my pocket, went upstairs and just act like nothing happened. I still remember the exact conversations that happened afterwards. We're talking about the Lakers and their championship chances. It was the day before the the, the midterm election, so talking about the tea party. And everything just felt so stupid and so meaningless and pointless Um, until lunchtime. And then lunchtime, I got my headphones and listened to my sad music. What was the sad music? Tupac, Pour Out Some Liquor. It was Bone Thugs and Harmony Crossroads. It was T.I. Live in the Sky. Might have been some gospel music in there, too. And then went back in and finished the day. Even the casualness in which you share this now, it's, um, well, I'm trying to process it myself. Are you just very good at compartmentalizing? As a survival tactic, I had to be in terms of compartmentalizing to get what needs to be done to kind of move whatever's next forward. So, I mean, it's a a great strength, but also a weakness and a liability. But I think I... Why a weakness? Where you compartmentalize, it can lead people around you to feel like you're being dismissive or that you don't care, A. Or B, it can make people think that you're Teflon. So nothing like, oh, they're fine, they're fine, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's that double-edged sword when it's really about a survival and defensive mechanism to just keep moving forward, right, and to keep the ball rolling. But I think the bigger part of it is I found such healing through the work of preventing violence, the work of reducing homicides, the work of reducing shootings, the work of giving ex-shooters second chances and, and redemption. I think that leads to the somewhat levity around describing a very traumatic and tragic situation. And I think for me, so over the decade, I've been able to kind of use that energy and use that pain and channel it towards something that feels like it's reparative and restorative. And I think that's what makes me able to talk about it in such a casual way, despite the fact, to your point, it it shook my world. It was jarring. It was shocking. It it took a while. Even now, still, I think about him or I I go to his Facebook page and see sort of old pictures and stuff and wonder, like, who would you have been at 30, right? So it's a process, but I think finding ways to take that pain and challenging it to purpose has been helpful for me. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. 
Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Well, you certainly channeled it into purpose because in 2012 you run for Stockton City Council. You're still in college. You win you served that term. In 2016, you run to become the mayor of Stockton, and you win again. You're the city's first black mayor and one of the youngest in the nation. That Teflon-like quality that you're talking about, did it serve you well in those early months when you first get into office? Yes and no. Part of what led to some backlash against me was that I did not emote, particularly publicly, like, you know, I, I just didn't really show what I was feeling, like, if I was affected or hurt. And I think some people took that as being standoffish or arrogant or uppity. Is there an instance of that that you're thinking about? Several. I remember one time meeting with a group of mothers, Latina mothers and Black mothers, who had lost their children to gun violence. And they were sharing, and some were shrieking, and some were crying, and... I was just quiet, and when I spoke, I was very measured and said, I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing. I'm so sorry your, your kids are no longer here. It's unacceptable. Here's what we're doing. We've increased detectives. We Our clearance rate's up. We've reduced homicides, et cetera. And then afterwards, one of my friends who was an organizer told me that the parents thought that I didn't connect with them or that I um, didn't care. And I was like, huh? <laughs> But they were used, particularly to political leaders, instead of talking about solutions to really commis commiserate and be performative in terms of acting out empathy. And I realized, I was like, well, yeah, but I mean, this conversation is tough for me because also someone in my family has been murdered as well. So I don't think it's appropriate for me as the mayor to spend this time commiserating when I should spend this time talking to you about what we're doing to prevent these tragedies from happening. But I think for a lot of people, particularly in the leadership they were used to, was sort of leadership that wasn't about solutions, but was really about commiserating with you about the problem and telling you how difficult the problem is and giving you an outlet to share your pain. But I just never found that healthy. So I was always trying to redirect it to like, okay, but this is what we're doing. And I think for a lot of people, that was just different and jarring. So some people wanted more connection or, or 
a more empathetic approach that was less policy-based? I think people were really stuck in their experience. And I'm just not trained in therapy. That just feels like a bad use of everyone's time. And to me, it feels like it's exploitative of pain and trauma. And I just refuse to do that. When in politics have you been pushed to the point of showing that emotion that you hold? Is there any point in your four years where you felt this is a bridge too far? We would have these quarterly meetings with me, the U.S. attorney, the police chief, and um, young men we suspected were either perpetrators or future victims of gun crimes. And I was the opening speaker, and I would find myself getting really emotional because I would talk about my dad, and I didn't want that to be them. Or how I don't want their children to grow up wondering where their father is. Or I talk about Donnells. I don't want you to end up dead and see your face on T-shirts and your family doing car washes. And I would talk about just being mayor of the city and the amount of the funerals I had to eulogize of, of young people, the amount of calls and meetings I have with mothers and wives who've lost people. And I would find my voice rising or cracking like every time. And that's when the emotion would get. Because I was looking at them and, and I could see them like, look, like this could be the conversation. So let me tell you how much this means and how much it matters. So, so then, and then talk about basic income. Or anytime we had a debate on the dais around anything that was going to help poor people or marginalized people, if there was opposition, I would take that really personally mm-hmm. and emote more than I generally did. But it's that idea of universal basic income and the pilot program you launched that catapulted you onto the national stage. In response to this positive wave of media attention, a local blog called 209 Times goes on the offensive. From the day you're elected, they launched what they called Michael Tubbs' Operation Icarus, a reference to the mythological Greek figure who melted his wings by flying too close to the sun. Beyond the name, It was a calculated four-year campaign to ensure you were a one-term mayor. The blog did this by spreading rampant misinformation. They published articles that claimed your scholarship programs were missing millions of dollars, that you were under investigation from the FBI, that you didn't actually live in Stockton. Of course, most of these accusations are plainly racist. All of them have proven to be untrue. And yet, they were effective. After winning your first mayoral election in 2016 with, I think, 70% of the vote, you lose in 2020 to Republican Kevin Lincoln by about 12%. My question to you, why was this website so effective at eroding public trust and a man and mayor they clearly liked? I think part of it was in Stockton. So at the time I was elected, also our large, our only newspaper in this town of 315,000 people laid off a third of its staff and was running just national stories, basically, in some local interest, but mainly national stories, no real digital presence. Eh? That paper was called The Record? The Record, yeah. By the time you come into office, they only have six employees. Yeah, so six employees for the only newspaper for a town of 315,000 people. So it was a vacuum. Number two, I love Stockton, but of the top 100 metro areas, it's number 99 in terms of adults with a four-year degree or higher. According to U.S. News & World Report, one of the most illiterate cities in this country, like I think number 144 out of 150, which doesn't mean my folks are dumb, but it does mean we can be susceptible to misinformation that preys on existing biases, that preys on manipulating emotions. And I think sort of 
Stocktonians are real saw the earth people. So I think for a lot of people it was, why would anyone spend four years trying to get a mayor out? Why would they lie? All of this can be lies. I think it was like what Steve Bannon said about Trump, just flood the zone with shit. And then you begin to wear people down. So it's like, well, maybe some of this is true. Maybe all of it's not true. But maybe there's a kernel of truth somewhere. And that's like given the benefit of doubt that creates scenes of discord. When you're the first of anything, you're going against a century-long idea of who has this position. Who is the mayor? What does the mayor do? How does the mayor act? What does the mayor look like? So my first meeting as a, as a city council person, the city manager met with me and said, I have never seen a community so distressed as I've seen the black community in Stockton. He said the outcomes on every measure are terrible. And he was like, I've never seen anything like this. And he's been in city government for 35 years. So there's also a, a latent racism and also an anti-blackness that permeates in the city of Stockton, which I think made it easier for those lies to stick because those lies were rooted to sort of anti-black biases, like I'm a criminal, I am lazy, I'm illegitimate, I don't actually live in the city, I actually did not win the election. And I mean, you do that on social media. I mean, because we were, which is funny because I'm young, you think I would have been the master of social media, but I came of age politically in 2012. Twitter was like a very small part of my campaign strategy. So much of our game plan, we were communicating to people through newspapers, through broadcast television through like traditional media outlets and we weren't talking to people every single day so they were also able to build a relationship with people where they would post like a fire first before anyone or post like a car crash before anyone um and i think that led to a relationship with sort of folk so that when they started feeding them that poison it was like well i mean i, I checked it for what i mean i was i was going to look at the traffic today i was going to see if there was any fights any anything happening in the homeless encampments and this is what they said and a thousand people liked it. It can't all be true. It can't all be false. Like, there's something there. At the same time, leading an agenda that was very much anti-status quo, that was doing things like basic income, that was doing things like giving second chances to ex-offenders to bring down homicides, that was doing things like prioritizing the parts of the city that had been neglected, that was doing things like ending the golf course subsidy. So you have all this change happen by someone who looks very different. So that's causing a lot of energy. You have all this national attention saying, oh, my gosh, this guy's amazing, which breeds resentment. And then you have this local, hyper-local blog misinformation site that every day, three times a day, drip by drip by drip, is painting a, a different story. And the last thing I'll say about this, which I never thought of before, what's interesting is that, and I was like, okay, people have to recognize that if they're the only people who are saying this, Chances are it's not true. <laughs> like if this, Of all the attention we get, and they're the only people that know this, but because of the lack of education and because of the racism, it became like the more outlandish the claims became and the more isolated and detached they were, not just from reality or from other media outlets, the more resonant it became with folks. Because like, oh yeah, look, everyone else is lying, but they're telling us the truth, which is, it's hard for me because I just don't have that worldview and I, don't, I, I just can't even begin to logic why that makes sense. Do you think that's because some part of people wanted it to be true? A million percent. And I think that's why it was so effective because not everyone who sort of pays attention to that website is necessarily racist, but there was a lot of things on that website that it did appeal to people who were racist. And I think part of it was, oh, wow, this fits my schema. No one's been successful as mayor of Stockton, so he's stealing money. Of course he can't be the mayor. He didn't really win the mayor. He doesn't even live in the city. Like, it was like 
finding ways to legitimize people's abhorrent and abnormal thoughts about who I was and what I was doing. And unfortunately, it was, it was successful. Michael Fitzgerald, who was a longtime columnist at the local paper you mentioned, The Record, said, I think there's that envy factor in this town. I mean, shouldn't people look up to you when you graduate from Stanford and you have all this wonderful, innovative stuff going on in the city with such a focus on the economically disadvantaged? But a lot of people didn't. Stockton has a culture of mediocrity, and it's really difficult to transcend it. I'm not from Stockton. I haven't spent much time in Stockton. I don't know if what he's saying is true, that it has a culture of mediocrity. But the fact is, Stockton hasn't re-elected a mayor for a second term since 1990. Pretty hard to get things done in four years. Do you believe what he says? That some part of the community is stuck in mediocrity? A million percent. And I say that as someone who has deep love for the city, who dedicated my entire 20s to the city's uplift. But you see it particularly in our governmental institutions. I was fighting with the county on mask ordinances during COVID when we had one of the worst COVID rates in the state. Our largest school district has some of the lowest literacy rates in the state and has a board that's incredibly incompetent and and, and dysfunctional. The city tolerates from its institutions people that I wouldn't hire to do anything. So I think there is a real culture of mediocrity, and I think that's part of why I came back, and I think that's part of why I made sure on my end to be consistently excellent, not just on the Stockton stage, but on the national stage. Like We're going to show that we can be excellent and we can be great here. And that's why we spent so much time with young people and investing in young people so that they don't begin to embody or internalize that culture. And then I also think there's not all the community, but there's a segment of the community that's addicted to dysfunction. What do you mean by that? There's some people in the city who leaders I've worked with who were happier when the previous mayor had nothing moving, when the previous mayor was under FBI investigation, when the previous when there's this dysfunction and rancor at City Hall, because it made them relevant and made them important and made them sort of leaders. And there was a lot of community leaders who actually were upset because things were moving with or without them. Things were happening. We were showing what could be done. I think AOC said this after the insurrection. I remember her IG Live. She said these folks would rather the building burn down as long as they're in charge. And I think of like the fire union, for example, and the police union as a clear example of that, but also some different community leaders and activists. So it's not the entire city, um, but there's definitely a culture of like hyper parochialism that's actually exclusionary and marginalizes a lot of folks in the city who aren't part of quote unquote old Stockton that permeates. And that's a lot of the things I fought against when I was a council member and mayor. It's a curious thing because for people who don't know, the city manager is really more important than the mayor, which essentially makes the mayor an ambassador, a fundraiser, and a go-between with other government entities. And so you very much knew what the job was. And I think knowing that, you did a remarkable job introducing new innovative ideas that garnered national attention. You then funneled that national attention back to Stockton in a way they previously haven't seen. And the strange thing is, you were punished for it. And I want to know, where do you think you misstepped along the way? I definitely think that's a fair characterization. Another other thing I would add is that I had studied the position for four years as a council member, so I knew how to make it work 
I was able to hire a city manager who I selected to be my partner. And I always had four votes with me. Anything I needed to get done, I could get done. But so I think it was that and all that power and all that influence and all that intention from someone who looks very different than anyone who's ever occupied that role or space, which I think led to some suspicion of people. I think I misstepped in a couple of ways. Number one, I should have scaffolded it. What does that mean? See, stuff would go crazy. Because I would say, let's do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, all the way to Z. We're not just doing A and B. We're so far behind. Like, literally in my office, I had a, a shot clock of how many days, how many hours, how many seconds until my term was over. And I was just going all the time. So there was always a sense of urgency. Like, we don't look how much time we have. So, so you wanted to give yourself an anxiety attack? It was very motivating for me. It was like, look, you guys, we have how much time do we have? Can we get it done this time? Let's go. Let me tell you, if there was a shot clock in here, <laughs> Talk Easy would be done yesterday. It, it, it drove my staff crazy, I'm sure. Because of that, I didn't think of my time as eight years. I thought of my time as four years. And I think if I had thought about sort of, okay, you have eight years, maybe I would have did the golf course thing in term two when I'm laying ducked and the political ramifications wouldn't have been, I wouldn't have to calculate those. So I think that's one. The second thing is, Minus the last election, every other election I've been in, I've won by at least eight points or more, and usually by 20, 30 points. I, I know politics, but when I'm governing, my political calculus is second to what I think is right. And I think it's that sort of fidelity to this is what's right. We're going to do it regardless of the political cost to me. Unpack that distinction that you're talking about. Yeah. So when campaigning and, and the act of politics is just the act of sort of perception and the act of sort of getting people to think that you are going to have their worldview, you'll have their best interests at heart or you, you are the best representative of them. You sit with people you disagree with. You don't really take strong positions. You talk about values, talk about the things everyone agrees with, et cetera. But then when you govern, you actually have to get shit done. You actually have to do stuff. And I... Just take it so seriously. I take like the public trust. It's like sacred to me that I was very adamant that I would tell my staff, we are in this office to do something, not to be something. We're not here to be mayor. We're here to do the job of marrying govern. So I've never been afraid of tough votes. Oh, golf course. Golfers are going to be mad. White popular is going to be mad. Um, people who live by the golf course are going to be mad. Like, But that didn't phase me. It was like, they can be mad, but this is what's necessary for us all to be happy. And I think that's a great skill to govern. It's hard to do that well and do the politics well, particularly in, in a city as diverse and as messy as Stockton. So I, I could have done less. But, I mean, for me, the position wasn't was a means to an end. So I just can't even fathom me slowing down to do it for eight years, but I could do it in four. What do you mean it was a means to an end? Being mayor was never the goal. The goal was to increase opportunity in Stockton. The goal was to sort of prioritize equity and, and to center marginalized people. The goal was to really show that cities like Stockton matter. That was the goal. And the mayor was the means to achieve that goal. But I can't imagine being happy if I was every day was, well, okay, how do I get to next, four years later? It's like the job wasn't that great for, for me to even want to move slower, but if I want to be reelected, that's what I, I should have done. I should have been like, okay, you know what? This is a tough vote. And the thing is, my your biggest strength is also your biggest weakness. And one of my strengths is I'm not afraid to be first. I'm not afraid to be in front. I'm not afraid to take heat. So for almost every tough vote the council took from the time I was a council member to the time I was done being mayor, 
I was always a front person. I was always making the motion. I was always making the arguments. I was always in the press making the case. And I mean, you can only take so much arrows. You can only take so, you can only be the fall guy for so much, right? I knew I had political capital, but I think I just spent more than I had. And I didn't really recognize that, hey, actually, someone else should probably be the front person for this. But then it's like, it might not get done. Did you want to get reelected? I did. I went to be reelected, but a year later, I'm happy. <laughs> I wasn't reelected. I'm so happy with how everything played out, but I definitely wanted to be reelected. But I'll be honest with you, I was exhausted, especially 2020 was just a tough year to be mayor and seeing all the devastation of COVID and your city's a ghost town and people are stressed and anxious and you're working with a county government where the head of the Office of Emergency Services told me to stay in my lane because I said I need some, I need a mask mandate for my people. I need some of these county funds to come to the city. I need my migrant farm workers not to get COVID because we're not doing our job as government. I need a testing site. I need this. I need that. And the response was, stay in your lane to the mayor of the largest city in the county. And then my council voted against me on like render protections during the pandemic. So we could, it just got to the point where I was like, I'm just tired of fighting all these fights and no one seems to care. Like everyone outside hates me still and thinks I'm a crook and criminal. I'm the only one in here fighting for their best interests, making sure that money is spent the way it should be spent. So I think part of me subconsciously may have been ready to transition, honestly. But as far as I know, I, I wanted to be reelected. I felt like we were, we had so much momentum. I felt like in term two, I could be even more radical because I was lame ducked and there was another election looming. So all political calculus out the window. And I was really excited because we had some big things lined up. But everything happens for a reason. I'm, I'm happy I wasn't reelected. I bring all this up because next year are the midterms. And it's worth thinking about not only the races, but how one wins those races. And I have to say, if someone like you couldn't pull it off, I'm trying to find hope. The only caveat I would add is that... It I w- hope there's a lot of caveats. Well, the biggest one, and I want to make sure people don't lose sight of this, it wasn't an election year campaign that did me in. It wasn't like the regular campaign, the six to eight month cycle. It was a four year strategic planned, intentional campaign with no counter until election time that did me in. So I think part of it is to your point, when folks like us get in office, things change, things move. And we just have to be smarter going in, predicting that the backlash will be probably even more than we expect, that there would be organized interests who will spend time thinking about, okay, what can we do every day for four years to make sure it's not a second term? And I just didn't get that warning. No one told me that. I would have, I would have made sure we were ready, but it was four years. It was by the time people got to the ballot box, we were fighting whether Michael Tubbs is a criminal or not, whether Michael Tubbs lives in Stockton or not, whether Michael Tubbs is under FBI investigation or not. And that was a whole different sort of level of political warfare we weren't prepared for. And I I take some blame for that. But no, we have to be hopeful because what we see in our politics now are people who aren't interested in governing, who are just interested in being in government. The only way to solve these big existential crises from climate change to institutional racism to housing affordability, wealth and income inequality is getting people in the messiness of the system. And then also for everything, there's a season. And you play every day like it's your last, you only have one term. And if you only have one term, 
like me, you'll have a body of work you'll be proud of and be like, look, I'm not even sure if I could did more in term two. I feel like we've been hard to follow this act, <laughs> honestly. I'm like, what? Like, like, I think we did such incredible work. So I think people should get in knowing that you may not be in forever, and that's okay. But when you're in there, do everything you can to make it matter that you were there. And then win or lose, you'll be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, look, it mattered. So you're in favor of people getting into office, doing as much as they can with the time they have, irrespective of how their voters feel about it. <laughs> Which is why I'm the one-term mayor, I think. Sir. <laughs> but no, I think the job of leadership is to mold. Like Dr. King says, a leadership is a molder of consensus. Like you don't just wait for consensus and then you lead. That's like, no, like leadership is saying, this is where we need to go. And let me push us to get there. Let me build consensus to be, get there. I think, I can't think of anything I've done as an elected leader that at the time the public was already there. Usually what I did was the public identified a problem that they wanted a solution for. There was consensus around the problem. And they had to bring consensus about the solution. And oftentimes people didn't like the solution. I get it, but we all agree on this problem. So let's focus on this is a, so a possible solution to the problem. I guess I just wanted to add nuance to what, to what you were saying. It's that you, your job of leadership is to get the public to where they should be to solve the problems that they say they want to see solved. Before we go, you, you referenced all these things that you're proud of. Why don't you share some of them? I'm incredibly proud of the Stockton Scholars Program. I was able to raise 20 plus million dollars so that even though, though I'm not even mayor, we have a foundation I started that still, I'm still the board chair of. And for the next decade, every single kid who graduates from our high schools is guaranteed a two-year, four-year trade school scholarship as a way to transcend that cultural mediocrity that we talked about and let the young people know there's expectation that after high school, you'll do something, whether it's trade school, whether it's a certification, whether it's opening a business, whether it's whatever it is, community college, college, whatever it is, you have to do something after high school. And we're going to make sure you have the resources to do it. We're not just telling you to do something. We're giving you the resources to do it. So I'm incredibly proud of that. Incredibly proud of the basic income work, which started with one mayor. Now we have 60 mayors as part of Mayors for Guaranteed Income, a coalition I founded. We have money in California's budget for basic income. We have a federal child tax credit, which is a guaranteed income for families with children. I'm incredibly proud of the violence reduction work. So when I was a city council member, I helped create the Office of Violence Prevention that's still there, even though I'm not. We brought in the ceasefire program and the advanced peace program, which is still there, even though I'm not. Um, we reduced homicides 40% 2018, 2019. So proud of that. And then we also did a bunch of work around climate justice. And we were able to get $10 plus million from the state to really focus on planting more trees so people in the south part of the city don't have asthma or don't live three degrees higher than other people in green jobs, et cetera. So I'm really proud of that work. And lastly, proud of the fact that when I came to city council, we were bankrupt. When I left as mayor, we were the fourth most fiscally healthy city in the nation with a $13 million surplus in the pandemic. Like, proud of the way I was able to help fiscally manage the city. I know many people keep asking you, Michael Tubbs, are you going to run for office again? They usually ask it in a much more seductive way than I just did. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you that. Okay, I may ask you. But but first, in 2008, you're 17 years old. You were part of a team that won a national debate competition sponsored by the NAACP. As a result, you got to meet then-Senator Barack Obama, who was a presumptive Democratic presidential nominee at the time. You said to the New York Times, I looked at him, shook his hand, and told him, I'm next. <laughs> he responded to you, Okay. 
Do you still want what that 17-year-old wanted? Mm, I'm not wedded to the position, but I still want what that 17-year-old wanted in terms of a country that works for everyone. That's a bold kid. (laughs) That's a bold kid. From Stockton, California, South Stockton's finest. But no, I I think I'm, I'm still wedded to this notion that the country needs to work for everyone, but... At 17, I thought the only way to do that was to be president. And now I recognize there's so many ways to do that. So I'm going to, I'm open to that work and I'm not wedded to any particular position. Can I tell you, that's really the only politician answer you've given this whole time. <laughs> well, it's a real answer, honestly. I, I guess I should say I'm 31 years old. And if you had told me last year, if you know, if you asked me last year what I would be doing this year, I'd be mayor of Stockton. If you had asked me 10 years ago what I would be doing, it would not be being in Stockton. So all that to say, I don't know what the future holds. I'm open to all opportunity, but I'm not waking up every day trying to be president. No, that's not sort of how I'm living. In your personal life, you're married? Married. Two kids. Two children. I'm thinking back now to that scene you described earlier. You're in a Motel 6 with your mother. And on her off days, you write, she whispered affirmations about how one day I would have a pool in my backyard or that I would take my family on vacations to nicer hotels than this one. At 31, with two kids and a wife, how do you hear those affirmations now? Yeah, my mom and my aunt and my grandmother just had an incredible vision for sort of what I could be and what I deserved. And I so appreciate the fact that I kept my vision upward and outward and not sort of in the minutia of the day-to-day struggles in which we lived. And I'm just so, so thankful for them because they were planting a vision, building a a self-determination that that served me well. And I think we're all shocked at how right they were. (laughs) And we're all shocked at how they knew from a really early age. So, so thankful to them. And the pool? Yeah, I, I, I was sharing earlier, I remember our... The first house my wife and I bought together in Stockton had a pool. And my mom was so through the roof. And she doesn't swim well, but she would come over and just jump in the pool and swim and say, oh, my gosh, my son has his own pool. And now as someone who's been around sort of people with actual money, it's funny how for folks who come from poverty or economic insecurity, how there's little small markers that show you've arrived. So it's not a Maserati it's not a private jet. It's not a house in Aspen. For my mom, it was a pool. If her son had a pool, that signaled that he had made it, that she had did her job. So it was, I think it was a full circle moment for her, and I was so happy to be a part of it. Do you feel like you've made it? No, but I think sort of my definition of making it is as much about communal economic security as my own. I will feel like I've made it when we, like, in poverty or when we have a guaranteed income program or we have baby bonds or retirement savings for all. Like, like when those things happen, then I'll be, I made it. But right now I feel lucky to be in the process of making it, if, if you will. Well, until then, I have only one thing left, which is a piece of poetry that I know means a lot to you. I think sometimes you would read it in front of kids at Langston Hughes Academy. I'm going to uh, turn it over to you now. Yeah, this poem is my favorite. It's The Rose That Grew From Concrete by Tupac Shakur. Did you hear about the rose that grew from the crack in the concrete? 
proving nature's laws wrong and learn to walk without having feet. Funny it seems, but by keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Long live the rose that grew from concrete when no one else ever cared. What does that mean to you now? It's funny because I've had dozens of lectures on that poem in, in workshops. And for some reason, when you just asked the question, I was like, well, what? <laughs> I had to stop and think. I think the poem is both celebratory of sort of the resilience of, of the rose, but I think it's also a challenge. At least to me, I take it as a challenge as to why did that rose have to grow from concrete in the first place? And how many roses that were planted aren't growing? And not because they're deficient, but because the environment that they're in is a conducive to growth. So the challenge for to me in that poem is while being so proud and so excited about the fact that a rose, one in a million, can grow from concrete, it's also about sort of deep mourning about the fact that there's all these roses that didn't grow and sort of what can I do to make it so that they're plants in environments that they can grow. Lots of work to do ahead. Wherever you land, I look forward to supporting. I appreciate that. Thank you. Michael Tubbs, thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. that's our show special thanks this week to ashton wickstrom and of course michael tubbs his new book the deeper the roots is available now get your copy through mcmillan publishers or wherever you do your reading to learn more about michael's work visit our show notes at talkeasypod.com there you'll also find a back catalog of over 250 episodes i'd recommend our talks with representative ilhan omar Roxanne Gay, Noam Chomsky, Dr. Cornell West, Michael Lewis, Gloria Steinem, Jumba Lahiri, Jake Tapper, and Brittany Packnett Cunningham. To hear those and find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at TalkEasyPod. If you'd like to support the show by purchasing one of our mugs or our vinyl record with Fran Lebowitz, you can do so at talkeasypod.com slash shop. That's talkeasypod.com slash shop. Of course, this program would not be possible without our incredible team. Talk Easy is produced by Caroline Reebok. Our executive producer is Janixa Bravo. Our associate producer is Caitlin Dryden. Today's episode was edited by Clarice Guevara and mixed by Ben Tolliday. Our engineer is Tim Moore out of York Recording here in Los Angeles, California. Illustrations by Krisha Shenoy. Music by Dylan Peck. Video and graphics by Ian Chang, Derek Gaberzak, Ian Jones, and Ethan Seneca. Special thanks to Patrice Lee, Andre Lin, Kalen Ung, Shiloh Fagan, Nikki Spina, and Callie Syringus. I'd also like to thank the team at Pushkin Industries, Justin Richmond, Heather Fain, Mia LaBelle, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Morano, Maya Koenig, Carly Migliori, Jason Gambrell, Jacob Weisberg, and Malcolm Gladwell. I'm Sam Fragoso. Thank you for listening to Talk Easy. Before we go, on a personal note, 
a friend of this show, James Rocky, passed away in the last week. He died of a sudden heart attack. He was 53. Some of you may have read his work. He was a great film critic through most of the 2000s. Eventually, he pivoted to a different career, like many film writers have had to, and became a teacher. I never saw him in action, you know, teaching kids. But every once in a while, I like to imagine what that looked like. Because James was this uncommonly curious, polite, Canadian, gargantuan fellow. He loved reading, he loved writing, but he really loved people. The director, James Ponsolt, tweeted something I really liked. He said, uh, there are plenty of smart people, but there are very few decent ones. And James, ever since I met him, he was a decent one. If he liked you, he called you a doctor. He would say, Dr. Fragoso, every time without fail, Dr. Fragoso. If he didn't like you, he wouldn't say it to your face, but in private, he would have called you a melon farmer. I still don't know what a melon farmer is. About four or five months ago, he called me up on the phone. We hadn't talked in a year. Like many, we had grown apart in the midst of the pandemic. Not by choice, but by condition. And right away, we dove back into it like no time was lost. We talked about our families and love and school and teaching kids on the other side of this pandemic or in the middle of this pandemic with weird L.A. school mandates and, and kids who don't really want to be there. We talked for about 45 minutes. And at the end of the call, he got a phone call from someone else. And he said, hold on, I have to take this. I'll call you right back. You know, the end of the story. And what we're left with, besides the pieces of writing, is this beautiful memory of what he was. It doesn't feel like enough, but it's what we got. And maybe, just maybe, some part of him remains in all those students he had, whose names I'll never know, whose faces I'll never recognize. But there's something really comforting in this image of walking down the street and thinking, well, maybe a little bit of James is in this person next to me. But God willing, those kids will become adults that fall in love, get married, have kids. And maybe one day, when their kid is in the, uh, the eighth grade, the kid will ask, what was your English teacher like in eighth grade, Dad? Mom. And they'll say, you know, it's funny. I didn't like most of my teachers, but this guy who pushed me to read and write and care and show up and be decent. He was a tough teacher. He only gave me a B, but I really liked him. He was a good man. And he really was. My love goes out to Ariane, his family, and all of us he's left behind. Strangers or otherwise. I'll see you back here next week with Noam Chomsky. Until then, stay safe, so long, and much love, Doctor. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards.
See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 